We're very, very glad today to have Professor Gordon Johnson. He's Associate Professor of uh, Old Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he is going to uh, give us an overview of the book of Genesis for the next three Sundays. And, um, so without any further ado, I'd like to introduce him, and we'll get started. Well, uh, Rob had asked me to do an overview of Genesis uh, for three weeks, and what I thought we would do is uh, just to go paint the broad sweeps in terms of helping you see the overall uh, structure and themes in the book of Genesis, and then we're going to focus the first major section in Genesis is what we call the primeval accounts, uh, the material in hoary antiquity from Adam to Noah and Noah to Abraham in Genesis 1 to 11, and then uh, the patriarchal narratives, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, chapters 12 to 50. So we're going to try to get, get the overview. Uh, we'll talk just a little bit about how the book of Genesis as a whole fits together, but then we're going to spend the bulk of our time today just in Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, now there's a lot there, just jam-packed. What we're going to try to do is to help you see the overall, uh, the major themes and how this section gets put together, and uh, we'll be able to ask some questions as far as what, what's the narrator doing, because he designed this in a way that you've got two parallel panels, uh, which is inviting us to, to see the parallels and to ask the question, what's happening? Uh, and anywhere along the line, uh, we get into this. If you'd like to ask some questions or there are issues that you want to pursue, uh, we'll go ahead and do that. All right? Sound fair enough? The game plan. Okay. Genesis is one of the first five, it's the first book of what we call the Pentateuch. Uh, the, in uh, Jewish circles, they refer to this as the Torah. Okay? Does anybody know what the term Torah means? One of the basic meanings of Torah? Okay, it's the word, it's the word for law and also instruction. And what you see in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, you get a combination of law and instruction. Uh, and the law uh, in, uh, the, in, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is, is viewed as a gracious act of God, gracious gift. It's not viewed as a tyrant. It was not given legalistically. It was not given... Uh, to the people to show them how to be saved. Rather, the law was given at Sinai to a people that God had already redeemed. They had already trusted in him. Uh, he gave the law to them, now for them, now that you believed in me, now to obey. And if they would obey, then he would bring him to the land. It's not unlike what happens in the New Testament, that we first meet Jesus as, as Savior. We're invited to believe in him. But as time goes on, we realize he's more than Savior. He's also to be my Lord, and I need to follow him and obey him. So the commands in the New Testament are, are gracious gifts of God given to us to help us to orchestrate our lives, to live wisely, to be able to live under God's blessing. Uh, Genesis is really the preface. It's the preface to the, to the Pentateuch. Uh, and the hand of Moses is upon the book of Genesis. Uh, we're not quite sure if Moses is the author of Genesis or the editor of, of Genesis, but the material predated Moses. What, what's the self-evident reason that this material came before Moses? Yeah, Adam and Eve, it goes all the way back to antiquity. And it would be remarkable if nobody knew of these accounts until, until Moses. We don't know if the accounts from Adam to Noah to Noah to Abraham, to Abraham to Isaac and Jacob, we don't know if this was written down at one point and it came to Moses in some kind of written form or if it was simply transmitted orally uh, from generation to generation. Uh, we're not sure if Moses himself is the one that it formally wrote the material in the final form uh, or whether it came from sometime after Moses, but we do know that the, that the fingerprints, footprints of Moses are on the book uh, because uh, the God in the, in the book of Genesis that the narrator refers to is Yahweh. 
Uh, in your English Bible, it's the term Lord that you have in all capital letters. Sometimes we refer to it as Jehovah. Uh, Exodus chapter 4 and 6 tell us that the first person to whom God revealed himself as Yahweh was Moses. When Yahweh met him at the burning bush, uh, he hears this voice and he says, Who are you? And he says, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, he says, Well, what, what's your name? And he says, My name's Yahweh. I am. Uh, and, he said, and then he said, To your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I revealed myself as El Shaddai. But to you, El Shaddai, we translate that uh, God Almighty. But to you, I reveal myself now for the first time as Yahweh. Okay. Uh, so the first time anybody had formally heard the name Yahweh, I am, or actually he is. Interesting, uh, Yahweh refers to himself as I am. Uh, he says, you refer to me as he is, for the self-evident reason that what? I'm not I am, it's, it's he is. And uh, there's this, this gap. Uh, he, he's the one who is. Uh, uh, but uh, even though uh, Moses was the first one that Yahweh formally revealed himself as the Lord as Yahweh, we find the name Yahweh in the book of Genesis. Now, it's not in the lips of the characters. It's not in the words of the characters. The name Yahweh is in the mouth, the voice of the narrator. So as the characters will refer to him, they'll refer to him as Elohim or El Roy or El Kanah, El Shaddai. But when the narrator is commenting, he says, this is the God we know as, as Yahweh. So you can tell that although the, the uh, uh, episodes, the accounts came from before Moses, they're being transmitted, if you will, from the framework of what the Israelites came to know as Moses. It's kind of like if somebody says to me, tell me when you met your wife. Well, of course, when I met my wife, she wasn't my wife, but I would refer to her as my wife, even though we, we hadn't been married yet. Now, with that said, that's important because the book of Genesis, although it's talking about events and what God did, how he did it, before the time of Moses, it is being interpreted and the materials that were given have been funneled and interpreted and framed in a way that's relevant to Moses and Moses' audience. Uh, the bulk of the Pentateuch, from Exodus to Deuteronomy, as the, the people that came out of the land of Egypt, the first generation at Sinai, uh, that were called not only to trust but to obey. And they failed. They failed to obey. Remember, they were laid low at Kadesh Barnea. It wasn't the first generation that got into the land. It was the second generation. The first generation believed, but they failed to consistently obey. So Yahweh said, it will be another generation, your sons, if they both believe and obey, they'll come into the land. And that's what Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is all about. Those, those two generations. The first generation that Yahweh delivered from Egypt, brought to Sinai, uh, but uh, failed to get into the promised land. And the second generation then that did get into the promised land. Now Genesis is all a preface to that. And this is uh, the prologue to that. And what's happening is that uh, uh, Moses wants the people to understand that this God that called them and redeemed them from Egypt, this is not the beginning of a relationship with this God in Egypt. Because when God uh, called Moses, he introduced himself as, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the material in Genesis is giving the background of this. Why I'm giving you the promised land. Uh, why, we're why the Canaanites are under a curse. Uh, in terms of the whole morality of, of uh, what do you think about uh, holy war and uh, destroying the Canaanites and giving the land to them? Uh, what's the significance? Why is God calling the uh, nation of Israel? Uh, what's their role in terms of all of humanity? Uh, the book of Genesis is framing that so that Israel would understand 
uh, their role, their place, God's purpose, what God's calling them to, them to do so that they understand. It, it gives the rationale in the background. book of Genesis, it explains uh, the, the origin of the promise of the land. Uh, that God's giving the land of Canaan to Moses and to Joshua. Where did this promise come from? Uh, why is he giving them the land of Canaan? Uh, why, uh, 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 where, where does Israel fit in this whole thing? And the book of Genesis is going to tell us, when we look in the Pentateuch, uh, you've got the first man, Adam, that God called to be co-region over creation. Of course, everybody blew it from that point, and then he started over with Noah, and everybody blew it, and then he started over with, with Abraham. And then there's a promise given from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And the promise from Jacob goes to the 12 sons that become the what? The 12 tribes, see? And so with that, with that 12 tribes, this is the people he's going to be working for to create a new humanity uh, that he is going to use uh, to be the redemptive agent. Uh, what we have in Genesis 1, to, uh, the book of Genesis, is not just miscellaneous history. Uh, this is redemptive history. It's tracing God's plan uh, to redeem humanity. It starts out really great. Uh, we've got creation, and the creation ends with this statement. It was very good. Uh, but by the time that you get to the end of uh, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3, you realize what was really good is now what? Really bad. Okay. And uh, uh, you then, God then begins uh, this plan of redemption uh, through a series of promises, uh, uh, calling people to trust and obey him, and he's giving promises and covenants. Next week, we'll talk about the covenants, covenant with Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, its relationship to the Mosaic covenant. Try to put the entire Bible together even a little bit next week uh, this way. Uh, but we're tracing the, uh, um, uh, the promise and the program of God. Uh, now, we're New Testament Christians, and we tend to gravitate mostly to the New Testament because it's directly relevant to us. Uh, we tend to think of the Old Testament as old, hoary, antiquity, dusty, irrelevant. Uh, but we understand in the same way that Genesis gave the background so that Israel could understand who they were and what God was calling them to do, the Old Testament gives the background for New Testament Christians so we can understand who we are and what God's calling us to do. So uh, I've heard a number of people suggesting if you want to understand the New Testament, you have to, first of all, understand the what? The Old Testament, right? Because otherwise you're coming in on the last chapter. It would be like reading a mystery novel and you read the last chapter where all the mysteries are revealed, and you say, well, that's interesting, but you know, who cares? Uh, if you read the not mystery as a whole, you realize, man, I really want to understand this. Um, so this is what we're doing. Uh, 1 to 11 is the primary accounts. 12 to 50 are the patriarchal narratives. Uh, the patriarchs, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Primeval, uh, the term for hoary antiquity. Okay? Now, I've chosen uh, the term accounts versus narratives. Reason being that when you read the material in Genesis 1 to 11, it's going to sound a little bit strange. Uh, it's talking about events uh, that are not only far away, far off, but the way that they're told um, is not the normal way that we in the 21st century recount history. It's not like reading a newspaper account or watching something on CNN. Uh, and so the way that it's conveyed is a little bit different. When you're reading the, prank or the patriarchal narratives, Genesis 12 to 50, we're using the term narratives here, because here when this material is being conveyed, it sounds a lot more like the way that we record history. It, it sounds more factual, more matter-of-fact, more in terms of a documentary. Okay? Even so, it's still not the way that we write history in the modern world. All right? But you're, you're standing more on grounds that you say, this sounds more like what, what I'm used to reading. What's interesting, by the way, is that uh, when you send your kids off to college, 
or when you all were in college yourself in grad school or when you're rubbing shoulders with businessmen uh, talking with people in the public square what section of the Bible besides the resurrection of Jesus and the incarnation what section of the Bible do most people raise their eyebrows over most yeah it's Genesis 1 to 11 isn't it it's that material in Genesis 1 to 11 creation the garden of Eden uh, those long lives of people in Genesis chapter 5 that they're living incredibly long lives this universal flood uh, the tower of Babel that's really where in many people's mind those are the deal breakers uh, we want to get people to John 3.16 right most people that have any awareness of the Bible are saying hey don't even talk to me about Genesis 3.16 I've got problems with, with uh, the way you've been talking to me about Genesis 1 and when I read Genesis 1-11 to there's major major problems so the irony is, um, Genesis 1-11, to it's not just important for us as Christians. It wasn't just important for ancient Israel to understand their calling. It's critical for us today because when we're in the public square wanting to talk to people about the Bible, uh, and even before we have permission to talk to them about Jesus, in the back of their mind, they've got questions about the Bible. Why should I believe the Bible? Uh, why, why, you, you know, why should I believe in Jesus? I mean, to believe in Jesus, I first have to accept the Bible. And yet I've got some fundamental problems with the very first couple of chapters of the Bible. Right? Uh, so we may get into a little bit of that. Um, but it's important for us then, I think, to, to come to grips with what is Genesis 1-11 to saying, both for us to understand Genesis, the Pentateuch, understand the prologue for the Bible, as well as to appreciate the uh, depth of concern. Uh, that people in the world have when they look at Genesis 1-11. to And there will be questions that people will ask of you. Uh, and usually one of the first questions that anybody has about the Bible. I've read the Bible and what's usually the, the first chapter that people have trouble with. Genesis 1, isn't it? In, in passages like that. Um, so we want to try to have uh, an understanding in terms of what are these chapters all about? What are they saying? How should we read them? Uh, uh, we are fully committed to inerrancy, inspiration that this is from God. It's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and inerrant. Uh, it's true. Uh, it's accurate. Uh, but part of the question is, is, is when we re- read this, how should we be reading this material? Are we expecting this to be read like a newspaper account, like CNN? Or is this material from ancient antiquity that's conveying things uh, maybe in forms that we're not accustomed to? reading, which may be creating some of the problems and some of the confusion. Okay. Now, just in terms of a basic overview, is that is that okay? Uh, now, in terms of just a basic overview, I don't want to watch my time because I want to give an overview and then leave time for, for Q&A. No, it's not bad. Um, what you have in Genesis 1 to 11 are basically two panels, two parallel panels. Uh, you might think that that's a strange break, 1-1 to 6-8, 6-9 to 11-26, and we pick up with 11-27. But there's a structure marker in the book of Genesis, and if you want to open up your Bible with me, and I forgot where I put my glasses. I think I've got them here. Uh, there's a structure marker in Genesis uh, that gets repeated over and over again that gives us the literary structure. If you highlight in your Bible or use a marker, if you desecrate your Bible by doing things like that uh, you might want to mark it uh, I've got a Bible that I mark and a Bible that I leave unmarked but uh, if you look at for example Genesis 2-4 these are the accounts of the heaven and earth Okay, in Hebrew Ha'ela uh, Toledot uh, these are the accounts of so this is kind of a title for a section 
So this is why we break 1, 1 to 2, 3. And then with 2, 4, we get a new title. Then if you will look with me to uh, 5, 1. Uh, these are the accounts of Adam. In 2, 4, this is the account of heaven and earth. Uh, 5, 1, this is the account of the descendant of Adam. Then if you will look with me at uh, 6, 9. This is the account of Noah. Okay, so... This is why we're giving a new section here of 6-9. We have one with, at, one, one with heaven and earth, one with Adam, one with Noah, and then 11-10. Uh, These are the accounts of Shem. Okay, 11-27. This is the account of Terah. And what you have is you've got, the three, you've got Noah, the three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, with tra- tracing with Shem. Shem has sons, Terah, and Terah is the father of Abraham. And then we have the account of Abraham. So what you have is this kind of this narrowing. Okay, heaven and earth, Adam, Noah, Noah's sons, and then finally tracing down to, uh, to, to Abraham. 25.12. Sure. I do, and I can uh, get a copy, and uh, we... I didn't do a good job communicating with Rob this week by email. I was kind of sick and kind of waited. I and uh, I can get a handout with all this written. I'll get this typed up and get it Xerox this week, and I can bring that as well as the structure for you. So if you come next week, see, this is only if you come next week. All right. Okay. Well, maybe I'll try to get you here the third week then by saying, you know, I forgot it, but I've got it Xeroxed. It's, I left it at home. I'll, I'll get that for you. Okay, uh, 2512. Uh, this is the account of Abraham's son Ishmael. And then 2519, this is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. And Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Okay, so 2512, 2519. It's kind of a strange place. You would think, gosh, you know, why do we not have the chapter breaks, you know, according to where these are? Well, uh, the chapter breaks were uh, done during the, mid- the medieval period before they had a better understanding of where these, these breaks were. The next chapter break will even be more section break is even more startling. Uh, 36, 36-1. This is the account of Esau. Now, I remember Jacob had two sons. What were his sons' names? I mean, Isaac had two sons. Jacob and Esau. He deals with Esau first because Esau is not the major player. Okay, he, he gave the account of Ishmael. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Who was the major one? Isaac. So in 25.12, he gave us the genealogy of Ishmael. No story about Ishmael. Ishmael's off to the side. That's all we have to say about Ishmael. Now 25.19, we've got a lot to say about Isaac. Okay, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. The minor one was Esau. So in 36.1, this is all we have to say about Esau. He gets the genealogy and then off to the side. And then in 37.2, again, a strange break. This is the account of Jacob, the family of Jacob. And so with Jacob then, uh, we have the 12 sons, 37-2, the 12 sons of Jacob, and then the focus uh, shifts to, to Jacob and the 12 sons. As the book of Exodus opens up, of course, the 12 sons of Jacob are where? They're in Egypt. And so we've got a different book, and so we don't have that structure. So that's, uh, we have this structure, and what, what you always have is it's narrowing. It's taking broad humanity, and it narrows it, and it narrows it, and it narrows it, finally to the 12 sons of Jacob that are in the land of Egypt to become the nation of Israel. Uh, each of these major characters, by the way, will have three sons or two sons. And uh, it will always be one son that will be the chosen one because there's, there's something happening about this chosen line. 
All right. And uh, the minor son will be dismissed with the genealogy, and then the focus will be on this, this chosen one. Now, Messiah is not yet clearly revealed in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there's not a clear prophecy of Messiah in the book of Genesis. But this narrowing, see, is going to go on throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And from uh, Israel, the focus, the next person that the focus will be narrowed to will be who? In the rest of the Bible. To David, right? It's going to be narrowed. There's going to be a covenant given to David. And ultimately, by the time you get to the exilic, post-exilic period, this picture of a future David will begin to emerge. Very late in the Hebrew Bible. And by the time the Hebrew Bible closes, we're ready for this picture of Messiah to finally emerge and the Messiah comes. So there's a narrowing. Uh, by the way, if, um, if you had a clear prophecy of the Messiah early on, you would not have a broad going to narrow you would have already started with what? Narrow, which would be, which would go contrary. So that raises some questions in Genesis 3. Many people, uh, the seed of the woman, bruising, being bruised and crushing the head of the serpent. Many people have wanted to see that as a direct prophecy of Jesus. It will end up, by the time the New Testament comes, they will read back and realize Jesus ultimately fulfills that in some way. But when it was originally given, it was not originally understood as a clear, direct prophecy of the Messiah. Uh, if it was a clear, direct prophecy of the Messiah, the rest of the Pentateuch does a pretty poor job of uh, tracing that, that expectation because there's no mention of a head crusher to come uh, after that point. We, we realize, ultimately, that Jesus somehow fulfills that. But have you heard of Paul Harvey? What's Paul Harvey's famous statement? Yeah, now for the rest of the story. See, uh, Genesis, talks, Genesis 3 is the curse. Uh, you say, well, is that all there is, is a curse? Well, the rest of the story is Genesis 4. God's going to start trying to redeem humanity. And as we, tra- as we trace the rest of the story, that very vague, veiled statement in Genesis 3 is going to get teased out and unpacked. And they're going to see more. As time goes on, they'll be able to see more there than what they would have seen on the front end. It's kind of like a murder mystery. Have you ever read Agatha Christie? Okay, Herco Perot, I love Herco Perot. I'm Miss Marple. I'm not too keen on it. Uh, I've got every one of the uh, Agatha Christie murder mysteries. There's 52 of them. Uh, at one point, I had them all lined up in my bookshelf in order. I had an Agatha Christie companion, and I was going through reading them all. There were some good, some bad. Uh, I put the bad ones off to the end. That was a mistake. Uh, but uh, in a mystery, it's a, it's a whodunit, right? You, uh, you know at the beginning that there's a problem. Somebody gets murdered. But the question is what? Whodunit, Right. Uh, and uh, it's you, you're, you're trying to figure out all the way as you go through who done it. Uh, finally, at the end, mystery is revealed. And if it's been a good murder mystery, you think, Oh, I missed it. I, I, oh, I missed those clues. They were there. I missed it. Now, if you figure it out in advance, if you figure it out too early, you get to the end. You say, That was self-evident. That's kind of a letdown. You know, I, I wanted, I really wanted to have a. Uh, if it turned out that there were not enough clues it wasn't fair, then you're a little bit frustrated because you realize, I, I didn't have a chance, right? Now, there's two ways to read a murder mystery. One is to start with the first chapter and ask the question, who done it? The other way is to cheat. And cheating is what? Read the last chapter first because you say, well, I, you know, I want to know who done it. Well, it's not very much fun to read a murder mystery then, right? Because you say, well, I know, that's perfectly clear to me. Well, of course, you cheated. And you say it wasn't a very good read. There was no drama. Well, of course, you took all the drama out of it. What do you expect? But um, if you've got a really good murder mystery, you read it the right way. You follow the rules, right? You, you read it with the mystery. 
and you, you get to the end and you go, I, I didn't see that one coming. If it was a really good one, what are you tempted to do? Go back and read it again. Now you know who it was and now you know what to look for and you realize, oh my gosh, there was a clue. Why didn't I see that? Because the author was being fair to you to put the clue there, but the author was also veiling it and hiding it, doing something to distract your attention from it because it's supposed to be a mystery, right? Well, ironically enough, when most of us read the Old Testament, most of us have already read what? The New Testament. In effect, what did we do? Yeah, we, well, we, we don't want to say cheated. That sounds bad. Because we did this with good faith, right? But we read the last chapter first, right? So we come back and we read the Old Testament. We say, well, it's crystal clear to me. I see it, right? Well, it's, we've already read the last chapter first. We have to read it the way it was given, ancient Israel. They didn't know where this was going. Okay? So we read Genesis 3 about this head crusher and the one that's going to, you know, uh, the serpent's going to crush, bruise the heel and crush in the head. And as Christians, we say, well, I, I know ultimately what that's pointing to. But ancient Israel, they wouldn't have understood that. They would have understood that probably as this conflict between man and beast, between man and serpent. This bloody conflict, a mutually fatal conflict with no hope of resolution. The rest of the Old Testament is going to take that and start teasing it out and say, well, there's more going on here. We can maybe, at some point, we can maybe pursue that. Now, here's, here's what's happening. I want you to see the, uh, the structure here. Uh, we'll just do this really quickly. Um, you've been looking at this, and it's going to be not the big payoff that you've been hoping for, but it would have taken too long for me to write it. Uh, 1, 1 to 2, 3, you have creation of the earth, commission of Adam, and then the disobedience of Adam. So there's a real disappointment here. It's a, it's a tragedy. Then you have the judgment of Adam, but you sense it's also the judgment on mankind uh, because man, not only Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, but all mankind has lost contact. Uh, there's provision for the future. They're provided with clothing because they're going out in the, this howling waste. Then you have the account of Adam's three children. Originally it was Cain and Abel, but Cain killed Abel, and so God provided a replacement, Seth. Interesting Hebrew, the word Cain means son. Abel means boy. Really creative. Uh, boy killed son, and so God provided a replacement. Seth, his name means replacement. How would you like to have that name hung around your neck? Yeah, I'm the replacement. I've got a little bit of an image problem here. I mean, I'm a replacement child. Um, then you have, and, and Abel's name, uh, it, uh, it means son, but there's a little bit of a word play. There's another Hebrew word that means uh, uh, missed uh, vanity. Uh, and there's a little bit of irony there because son was just like, you know, dust, dust in the wind. His name doesn't mean that, but there's a, there's a little bit of a word play there, perhaps. Then you get the sin and curse of Cain because Cain killed Abel. Then you get a short genealogy which is tracing not Seth, the godly son, but Cain, the wicked son. And Cain's line is wicked. Uh, uh, and then at the end, though, we're told that uh, when Seth was born, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you actually get this picture of almost two humanities, uh, the wicked descendants of Cain and the godly descendants of Seth. Of course, we realize that everybody's marred because the disobedience of Adam is reflected in what? The disobedience of Cain. Now, Paul in Romans 5 is going to make the point that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam sinned, his nature got passed on to us. Uh, when Adam sinned, God cursed not only Adam, but all of humanity. Genesis doesn't make it that explicit. Uh, Genesis simply says God cursed Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, there's nothing said about a sin nature being passed on, but you can tell implicitly the very first child Adam and Eve have, Cain, 
He's a murderer. Uh, and uh, uh, Seth appears to be a godly man. Uh, they begin to call upon the name of the Lord, but Seth's ultimate descendant is Noah. Noah starts well, but at the end, Noah what? Yeah, he messes up. He gets drunk, right? So you even realize, even the godly man Noah, there, there's a problem with sin, fundamental problem with sin in humanity. Paul, Paul gives it more theological. Genesis is, is telling it more of a story. Uh, you get the short genealogy of Cain, uh, the uh, corrupt, especially corrupt descendants. Uh, and then you get a vignette, a short story about Lamech, one of the sons of Cain, and he's a murderer. So uh, if there's any question that humanity is, has gone awry, uh, he's following in the footsteps of his uh, predecessor. Then you get a long genealogy, and the long genealogy is now tracing uh, the godly line from Adam to Seth and from Seth on down to Noah. But uh, unfortunately, even that group is going to be corrupt. And uh, God had said that if the day that you sin, you'll die uh, because there was a serpent involved. It was not blatant rebellion. They were deceived. God didn't kill them on that day, but still death was going to be the curse. And in Genesis chapter 5, you've got ten generations, but every one of them what? Dies. We're told they, they died. Now, number seven along the way, uh, Number seven is Enoch, and he walks with God. So although there's corruption within humanity, there's this glimmer of hope that it's still possible to walk with God. Um, chapter six, though, we get the rebellion of humanity because uh, mankind begins to uh, multiply. With the multiplication of mankind, we have multiplication of sin. And at one point we're told uh, every thought and intention of the heart of man was on evil continually. And the shocking statement, if you want to look with me in Genesis chapter six, uh, that uh, we, we started with this creation that looks so good, uh, but in Genesis chapter 6, we see in verse 5 a reversal of this. It's the whole thing is crashed. Genesis 6 5, when the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, 6 5, and every thought, every scheme and thought was nothing but evil, the Lord what? Grieved. Uh, any of you, translations, any nuance besides grieved? Sorry, Sorry regretted. The Lord was regretted that he made man. That's a shocking statement. Here's the God who's an omniscient God that knows the future. This is not denying God's foreknowledge. But uh, when man got to this point, it was to the point that, I'm sorry that I made man. Not that this was a mistake, uh, but that mankind had crashed and burned and became so corrupt that it grieved the heart of God. Uh, this was not what the original intent was. Not meaning that God's purpose is going to be thwarted because he's got a redemptive plan that he's going to bring out of this. But you see how deeply moved. And by the way, that's an important thing to note. Um, God is not just an automaton. Uh, we know God's got a will. He's got a plan. But uh, we talk about the difference between people and, and animals, the things that make ma makes man different. Intellect, emotion, and will. Uh, we know God's got super intellect, right? He's omniscient. He's got super will. His will will not be thwarted. But he also has what? Intellect, emotion, and will. He's got what? Emotion. He's not just got attributes, he's got emotion. Do you realize that when we obey, it pleases him? It puts a smile on God's face. It creates joy in his heart when we individually please him. When I disobey God, it grieves him. Even Ephesians talks about do not what? Grieve the Holy Spirit. It breaks God's heart. That means every morning that I wake up, I've got a reason to get out of bed. Even if my whole world is upside down, and I've got troubles at work, troubles at home, troubles in the world. I've got a purpose. When I get up this morning, I've got the potential to either 
put joy upon God's heart or to break God's heart. Uh, and it gives me my purpose of my day. To, to, to whatever I do, my goal this day is to put joy upon the heart of my Savior, my Creator. I mean, doesn't that give us a, give us a reason to get out of bed? gives us a reason to uh, what, whatever trial we have in front of us, that I've got this ability to, to please Him. Unfortunately, because we're corrupt, all too often we what? All too often we disappoint. But He's a good God. He's a gracious God. And what happened is, uh, although uh, mankind broke the heart of God, he didn't just trash the whole thing. What he did is he started over, in effect. And so you've got a new Adam, so to speak, uh, with Noah. Uh, and what you have is a destruction of, of the earth. It's a reversal of creation. In Genesis 1, we started with the entire earth being covered with water, and then uh, the dry ground appeared. The waters receded, the dry ground appeared, and God created mankind. In Genesis chapter 6, what happened? That dry ground, what? gets covered over with water. And so we have a reversal of creation. It's connoting the idea that he's, he's making a new beginning. Uh, and then we have a commission of Noah. Noah is uh, commanded to obey, just as Adam did. Unfortunately, whereas Adam disobeyed, Noah what? Noah obeys. See, this is looking good. Noah obeyed. He learned the lesson. Now, by the way, if you were an ancient Israelite, which of the two examples would you want to follow? Example of Noah, right? And as a Christian, which example are we called to follow? Noah, right? Now we know that I've still got the old Adam in me, but I've got this, as did Noah. But Noah obeyed. Now that doesn't mean that Noah was sinless perfection, uh, but on this fundamental command, uh, he obeyed. Uh, and then God, whereas God judged Adam and mankind, he judges the world and mankind now with the flood. Uh, God had, though, given permit, uh, provision for the remnant when he. In the midst of judgment, he cast Adam and Eve out, but he gave them what? Clothing from an animal, right? Now, after the flood, God provides for the new, for Noah and his family with food. And what's the new provision? Food is what? Meat. You can eat animals now. By the way, this is one of the tragedies that Genesis is making the point. In Genesis 1, he created not just mankind, but he created the plants, and he created what? the animals, and we were to be caretakers of creation. And look about who gets victimized because of mankind's sin. It's the animals that get victimized. Um, Genesis, or Corinthians makes the point that whenever you sit down to eat your meat, you thank God for the food that he's given to you. And one thing that we probably that we don't think about the fact, every time I sit down to eat my food, whether it's vegetarian diet or enjoying my, my good red meat, something else and someone else had to die in order for me to be able to live today. That's a humbling thought. Something else had to die in order for me to live. Now, that's why some people become vegetarians, but even even eating, if you don't eat meat, you're still eating what? Uh, plants, something has to die here in order for me to be able to eat. You really can't get, a, get around that. And what the response should be, I ought to be humbled by this, to realize that every time I sit down to eat my food, there's a reminder there of the sin and corruption and judgment of mankind, but yet the kindness and goodness of man of God, that he's made provisions in order for, to sustain us one more day. And I wonder if that with the trouble we're having with the economy, we may become a little bit more appreciative in those prayers at the dinner table that sometimes are just perfunctory, that we know Christians are supposed to pray these things, we might really start meaning this. Thank you, God, that I've got food today. There's many people that around the world, India, I was in India just a year or two ago, that uh, they don't see as much food in a week as we sometimes have on our table on Sunday morning after, after church. Okay. Uh, then you had Noah's three children. We had Adam's three children. Cain killed Abel and God gave a replacement. Here we don't have one killing the other. 
but we have uh, the three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and Ham screws up. Uh, Ham commits this act of indecency, and he is cursed for it. Uh, actually, the one that's cursed is not Ham, but Ham's descendant, Canaan. Now, why does the book of why does the book of Genesis make sure to to record that event? That Ham sinned, but his descendant Canaan was cursed. Why is that included? Because what land is God going to give to the descendants of Shem? The land of Canaan. This is explaining why the land of Canaan is going to be given, and why it's giving this background about what about the morality of taking the land of the Canaanites away from them. Genesis is making the point that whole clan they're all corrupt. This is a corrupt bunch of people. And in Genesis 15, he makes the point, we're going to give them 400 more years. Abraham, I'm promising the land to you, but you're going to go down to Egypt. Your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years. Then I'll bring you back up and give the land because I'm going to wait until the sin of the Amorites, sin of the Kenites and Amorites are complete. There's no question about the morality of this. We're just going to let them have their way for 400 years. And even in ancient Near Eastern literature, the Canaanites are referred to as a corrupt people. Even the ancient Near Eastern people, when they talked about Canaanites, they all said they're just they're wicked. And essentially what you have is capital punishment on a, on a most a national level uh, with the Canaanites. Uh, then we have a short genealogy, and then we have this vignette of Nimrod. Uh, Lamech was a murderer. Uh, Nimrod is a hunter. And we've got a long genealogy again, and this long genealogy now begins to trace from Shem to Terah and then to Abraham. We get the rebellion of mankind at the Tower of Babel, where we had the rebellion of mankind. Every thought and sin was uh, thought was on sin continually. Here we've got the corruption of mankind as a whole in the Tower of Babel. We've got the beginning of uh, what we would call modern civilization. We're, we're making a transition in history and culture from uh, village life to the first city-states. The Tower of Babel is the beginning of the first city-states, where we had the first kings and the first uh, administration. And although we all know that you've got to have got to have government, you've got to have administration. The book of Genesis says something that we all know. Uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Genesis does not have a very high view of human government. Uh, in the first example of human government, it went astray and uh, corrupted itself. And so God starts over, not by uh, electing a mayor or a king, but by taking one man out of that system, uh, a shepherd, and starting over with the people. Uh, again, and there we there we go to, to gives us a transition Abraham. So Genesis, uh, what what the impression that you get is you look at the first eleven chapters of Genesis, you're looking at something that started so well and ended so poorly. We're tracing the obedience, uh, the call to obey, and the disobedience, and all the consequences of the disobedience, and God's heartbreak and judgment. That God, being a gracious God, doesn't just trash humanity and say, "I regret that I made mankind. I'll just blot them off the face of the earth forever." Uh, God's a gracious God and does what? Starts all over. Gives a, new, gives a new opportunity. And so he calls Adam, or he calls Noah. And of course, Noah uh, and his, his family, there's corruption there as well. And he starts over with, with, with Abraham. Now, you go through the rest of the Old Testament, God ultimately is going to call who? Israel. He's going to call Israel to be a light to the nations. It starts so well. And of course, the Old Testament tells us that what? It ended so badly. Uh, and even yet, he sends the Messiah to Israel. Israel rejects the Messiah. He doesn't just trash the whole thing. What does he do? He calls the people, the new people, uh, those that did not seek me, I sought, and the gospel went to all the world again. Uh, so we're starting broad and going narrow, but by the time you get to the New Testament, what happens with the grace of God? 
goes broad again, see. And this is because at the very beginning, God's, God's intent and plan was for all humanity. Uh, Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Adam, and Noah were ultimately being called to be the agents of God's grace and God's redemptive kindness to mankind. And now what's interesting, what's, what's, what's challenging, is that very same commission to be the agent of God's grace to the world has been given to who? It's been given to us. It's been given to, given to us. And so... It's not just that God saved me and God redeemed me. We, 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 we we're part of a bigger picture, a bigger plan. And we need to understand where we fit in this entire cosmic drama. Um, the Western world, American particular Western civilization, tends to be very individualistic. We tend to focus on, you know, think about, you know, God's done this for me. God's my cosmic genie. You know, he makes me feel good when I feel bad. He's a penny in the gumball machine. I pray to him. He jumps through hoops. No, that's not really what this is all about. Uh, we're part of a body. We're part of a uh, humanity that God is wanting to redeem. And uh, we're not by ourselves. This is, he's called us, even in the church, to be part of a body, part of a community, a redeemed community that we work and help with one another, that we can uh, live out in a more ideal sense what, what we continually see uh, uh, humanity as a whole uh, falling. Okay, does this help kind of put Genesis 1 to 11, give you, give you a frame? Okay. Uh, let's open up for some questions. Oh, we can just talk about that right now just a little bit. If you were to look, to look at the first three chapters of Genesis and look at the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, um, uh, William Dumbrell, uh, an evangelical scholar, has a book called The End of the Beginning. And he refers to the book of Re- uh, Revelation 21-22 as the end of the beginning, Genesis, Genesis 1-3. Think of what you have. In uh, Genesis 1-3, you have two people... In Revelation 21 to 22, you have redeemed humanity. In Genesis 1 to 3, you have a garden, uh, paradise lost. In Revelation 21 to 22, you've got paradise restored. In Genesis 1 to 3, you have the single tree of life that Adam and Eve would have had the privilege to eat from and live forever, but because they ate of the tree of knowledge of evil, they lost access to the tree of life. Revelation 21 to 22, guess what? tree of life is restored. But in this case, it's not one tree of life, it's two trees of life. It's better. You had a garden, Revelation 21-22, you have a city, the New Jerusalem. Uh, in Genesis 2, God plants a garden and you have a river that comes out of the garden and goes into four directions. Revelation 21-22, to it's not a garden that you have that comes down uh, from heaven to earth. You have God himself that comes down and you've got a throne. What does Revelation 21, 22 say comes out of the throne? A river. river of life that comes out of that throne. And on either side of the river of life are the, the trees of life. And so paradise lost is paradise restored. Um, now, uh, questions, by the way. Uh, as I think about the future resurrection and uh, what we call heaven. Actually, it's not heaven. It's heaven coming to earth, right? Um, is that being pictured, is, is Revelation 21, 22, uh, I've got a cube city. Uh, the New Jerusalem is like a cube, cosmic cube. It's about as long, uh, wide, and tall as the entire earth. That's a pretty big city. Uh, I hope I'm not living on the top floor of that. Well, I know I wouldn't be on the penthouse. But, uh, uh, and you've got a river coming out of the throne. Uh, it says there will no longer be any sea, nor will there be a sun, because God will be the sun. And I've got a river coming out of the throne. On either side of the river are the trees of life. 
And Revelation 21, 22 gives us the impression. How will I know I will have eternal life? Well, the trees of life will be available. It says it will bear its fruit every month. Uh, not just once a year, but every month so the redeemed can eat from it. Now, is that giving me a newspaper account, CNN videotape on TV as far as what heaven will actually be like, or is that giving me imagery? I think it's giving me imagery because to think about a, a, a city that's as big, wide, and tall as the earth and all of humanity eating off of two trees. Now, granted, it bears fruit every month, and there's two of them, but I'm thinking that's going to be a pretty long line. Uh, and, you know, I hope we're having pretty fast elevators because, man, that's going to be, a, you know, I'm going to spend my whole day waiting in line for the elevator only to spend, i got to wait in line for a month, you know, for the tree. It's like, you know, my son says, you know, Dad, I can understand in heaven, you know, it's going to be exciting to praise God, but, you know, isn't that going to get old after a while? I tell him, well, you know, we probably don't know enough about God, you know, to think that we'd get bored. I think I'd get bored of standing in line for a month. My gut feeling is that's probably not giving you a literal picture of eternity is probably what? Imagery, right, to convey? Now, that raises interesting questions, though. If the tree of life in Revelation 21-22 is imagery, it raises some questions about the tree of life in Genesis 3. And I've got a talking snake, right? I've got a talking snake. I've got a magic tree that if I eat from this tree, I'll live forever. I've got another tree it will kill me. Um, and New Testament makes the point that it wasn't just a talking snake. Ultimately, the snake is who? Satan. So I know I've got some symbolism on some level. The question is how much symbolism, and we have to say what? We're not quite sure how much symbol I've got. But to say something is symbol does not make it fiction. That's important. To say that there's symbol here does not make it fiction. You can have real history conveyed symbolically. It's just a different way of talking about history. And again, this is not narrative, it's what? See, it's these accounts from ancient antiquity. I can convey things symbolically in a way that sometimes communicates better cross-culturally because the symbol communicates. So, I mean, was it an apple? Was it an apricot? You know, who cares? Uh, you know, was it a real talking snake? Was it a, uh, did Satan uh, take possession of an animal? Did Satan speak through the animal? Or is a snake simply a symbol for Satan? So I know I've got some, something's going on there. Uh, but the point is, no matter how you read Genesis 2 and 3, I've got a real man, I've got a real Adam, I've got a real sin, I've got a real temptation, I've got a real judgment, and I've got a real tempter. Uh, so whether you say this is giving me you know, a newspaper account, or it's conveying it literarily, theologically, the message is still the same, right? Well, and even when you get to uh, the, the, the Sinai, the law at Sinai, the, in Hebrew, the imperatives, the commands, you have, in English, you don't have gender with your verbs and your nouns. Just we don't talk, call a chair a she or a he, but in Hebrew, a chair may be a he and a table may be a she. So even verbs are masculine or feminine. And uh, sometimes we talk about y'all, or we may say you guys, or you gals. Uh, y'all, plural, is kind of vague if you're trying to talk about to address men or, or women. In Hebrew, you can do that. And even in the law, the imperative, the commands in the Decalogue, are uh, the, 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 the Ten Commandments are masculine commandments. Uh, and so the question is, why? Why is that? Does it mean that the women were not accountable to the law? Well, clearly the women are accountable to the law, the rest of the Bible. Um, more than likely, what's happening is that uh, the, the Old Testament uh, was, was uh, written to ancient Israel, and God revealed, stepped into history, 
contextualized himself, met ancient, met ancient Israel where they were at in time and space. And uh, in those days, uh, there was a patriarchal society. Uh, the men were the unquestioned, absolute leaders of the family. Uh, women in ancient, not just ancient Israelite society, but ancient Near Eastern society, women had a very much lower social status uh, than men. Uh, but if you compare the law of Moses, for example, with the law of Hammurabi, the law of Lipidishtar, Eshnuna, other ancient Near Eastern laws, the law of Moses is much more sensitive to the needs of protecting women. Women have a higher status in Israel than they had in the ancient Near East. So uh, God, is, God is, is meeting people where they were at. Uh, and uh, one of the things that you find in the Bible is that when you have sin, when sin spreads, uh, not only are animals victimized, but what, what gender group in society gets victimized? The women are being victimized by the men because the men have got the physical power, they've got the social status, and they protect that, they keep that to themselves to victimize the women. Book of Judges, it's always the women that are getting victimized when the men are going astray. Not to say that uh, we don't have sinful women in the Bible. Not to say that there's not sinful women in society. But the one thing that you'll see is uh, where there is no law, where there's no justice, there's no mercy, there's no kindness, the men will victimize the women. And it's tragic even in a Christian church where men will sometimes try to use you know, Ephesians 5 about men being the leaders and women being submissive almost as a club you know, to keep the women down, whereas actually... What, what Jesus and Paul were doing, even in their time, was actually elevating the status of women in their time. Uh, they weren't using it as a way to suppress the women. They are trying everything they can do to elevate the role of women. So, yeah, you're asking a good question. And I think part of what it is, is, is that it's not that the Bible is uh, advocating a patriarchal system, but God was, was revealing himself at a point in time and coming into a patriarchal society. We compare what Moses is doing with the rest of the ancient East. He's they're making strides. There's almost this trajectory, making strides to correct some of these injustices. And you see that going through the rest of the Bible, even with slaves. Uh, in the ancient Near Eastern law, you had three classes of laws. Uh, the rich landowners got this justice. The uh, free common people that did not have land got this level of justice. And the slaves get this level of justice. And every set of law, it's always landowner, commoner, slave, landowner, commoner, slave. Throughout Hammurabi, he's got 400, uh, 500 different stipulations. It always gets in that order. The slaves always get the leftovers. Interesting. In Exodus, right after God gives the Ten Commandments, he gives these detailed case laws. Guess who the first group that justice is lobbied for? Slaves. He reverses the order. You're going to give mercy to slaves. You're going to make sure justice for slaves. Why? You were slaves too, right? You know what it's like to be victimized. So we need to make sure that those that are most easily victimized get justice. And one of the things the New Testament talks about for Christians, our temptation is always to want to befriend those that are most like ourselves, socially, economically, ethnically, or to befriend those that are just a little bit higher than ourselves. Maybe, you know, we can get in on the, you know, the fact that I've got some rich friends. Where did Jesus go? He went to the poor and the down and outers, didn't he? And Jesus said the gospel must be preached to poor. James talks about the rich. They're the ones that tend to victimize you. It's the poor that are rich in faith. We need to have hearts for the downtrodden. Now you say, but they're smelly. They dress funny. You know, they, they have bad, bad you know, teeth. They, they, uh, they, they're, they're undereducated, you know, and they brought a lot of things upon themselves. Yeah, but are we going to be snobs? 
is the gospel only going to go to those that are like ourselves? We're only going to be concerned for those like ourselves? I mean, didn't Jesus call us to show mercy and kindness and compassion? We tend to, by the way, all of the movement, and I'm not saying, I mean, what's happening here in your church is strategic. There's got to be churches here. But we tend to plant churches in the suburbs. We also need to make sure we're planting churches in the suburbs that we're strategically as a body going into the inner city to reaching those people. Because otherwise you say, I'll bring them to the church. They won't feel comfortable. Yeah, because this is, yeah, interesting question. The Old Testament law, the, um, the epitome of justice is how do you treat the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the homeless. Uh, James makes the point, you think you're spiritual, you know, be a doer, not just a hearer. He says, if you think you're spiritual, here's the three acid tests. Do you bridle your tongue? Do you guard your heart? And do you visit widows and orphans in their distress? No, don't talk, let's not talk about do I do my Bible study reading every day? Do I do my prayer? Do I show up for church? Do I participate in the choir and check all those things off? Am I guarding my tongue? Am I guarding my heart? And am I making sacrificial, am I spending time sacrificing to reach out to the downtrodden, the down and outers? And it's not just to write checks for the church to do it. I need to be able to dirty my own hands. And this is ultimately what God is calling us to do. He's not just calling us to believe in Christ. We are, to, we are to believe in Christ. He's calling us to follow him. And that means, you know, Tony Evans talks about, we're not just a holy huddle. We're supposed to scatter. And we're to scatter to take Jesus to the world. But not just those to the world, those that are most like us. Particularly those that are the down and outers. And it, folks, if, it, if, not, if not us, if we're not going to be the ones that do it, who? Right? Who else is going to do that? So, yeah, there's some, interest, some wonderful things here. Uh, that's the test. How spiritual do I really think I am? Uh, am I doing these things? What am I doing for the down and outers? What have I done this week? What have I done this month? Have I, been, have, have I done anything this year? You know, what, what is, what's my test of spirituality? Is it really what the test of what the Bible says?